Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Long River Podcast. My name is Graham Rhodes, and I'm delighted to be here today with my friend Rob Sheridan, who just started Uluwatu Limited, a Hong Kong-based fund manager. Hey, Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Graham. Thanks very much for having me. So we're going to talk today about your business and what you're building and try to illustrate your investment process with a case study of a company called Free. Before we get into that, though, I have to give this little disclaimer. Everything we talk about today should not be taken as investment advice or marketing of any kind. Please just bear that in mind if you're listening. So, Rob, why don't you start by telling me a bit about yourself? I guess I could start from the very beginning. You can probably tell by my accent that I'm not from Hong Kong. I grew up in Philadelphia until I was 12 years old just outside of Philadelphia. My mom was working for a software company and was asked to move to London in the late 1990s. And we ended up moving there in 1997. And I spent seven seven plus years there and still have a ton of family living in London and went back to the United States for college at Duke University. And I studied philosophy and economics there. And I came across a very special professor at, at Duke, which anyone who's been there in the last 10 years would probably know very well. Her name is Dr. Emma Raziel, and I was a research assistant for her. And um, a very interesting woman. She was, a, I think, probably the first woman bond options trader on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs in the 1990s and left to become a professor at Duke University and is very connected into to Wall Street and to the investment community in North Carolina. And... She made an introduction to the team at Duke University's investment office, or DUMAC as it's as it's called. This was in 2007, and the team, senior team there, was leaving to start a firm called Global Endowment Management, which was one of the first outsource or OCIO models, outsource chief investment officer models that was launched right around that time. And I joined as a summer analyst in 2007, and and uh, joined them full time in 2008. So that was kind of my my introduction to to a professional investing. And what brought you to Hong Kong? That is a very long story, <laughs> but I guess backing up, I studied Mandarin in high school and in university and studied abroad in China my sophomore and junior year. And uh, when I was joining Global Endowment, I mean, they were a startup, essentially like Uluwatu is at the moment, <laughs> and uh, to, as, as, as part of a carrot to get me to join, which I guess at the time they didn't know I would have joined them for free, <laughs> but they offered to, to place me for half of the summer with one of their private equity managers in Jakarta. And this was in 2007. And, and I just, I totally fell in love with the region. And this is a very exciting place to be. So I, I spent three years with, uh, with Global Endowment. And at the end of that, packed my bags, did a backpacking trip around India and Southeast Asia and landed in Hong Kong and basically pounded the pavement with this, with a stack of resumes looking for anyone that would hire me. And yeah, that was 2012. And that's how you made the jump into public equity investing. Am I right? That's correct. Yeah. So about, gosh, about nine months after I arrived in Asia, I, I met the team at Ward Ferry Management and basically begged them for a desk with a computer and told them I'd work for free. And they were very gracious to offer me a three-month internship that I quickly converted into a, a full-time offer. And I ended up spending nine years working with them before leaving at the beginning of last year to, to start Uluwatu. Since we're both starting businesses at the same time, we've traded notes and everything. And I've had the, uh, the pleasure of reading your business plan. And I really like your mission statement. We find great entrepreneurs building great businesses. So just beginning from there, why don't you tell us a little bit about Uluwatu and what you're trying to build? So Uluwatu is a long-only investment partnership. We focus only on Asian equities. And the goal, as you mentioned, is to find great entrepreneurs building great businesses. And the portfolio that we have today, we have 11 of what I think are some of the best management teams across the region. And we invest from 
everywhere from India to Japan, Southeast Asia. And I think it, it's a really exciting place to be finding businesses that we think can really scale to be many multiples the size that they are currently. And our, our investment philosophy is very long-term oriented. So we're looking for businesses that we can ideally hold forever, but our typical underwriting period is north of five years. And how did you come up with this process? I, I've worked at two investment firms, so Global Endowment and Ward Ferry. And the investment philosophy is organically built out of my experiences at both of those places. And in Global Endowment, I started off in their private investments division, which they invest primarily in, in funds. And in my group, we looked after our effort investing in real assets, so real estate, natural resources, uh, investing in private equity, primarily fund partnerships. And I think what's unique about that, and actually a very useful foundation to build upon for what I was doing at Ward Ferry, is that you're signing up for these kind of 10, 12, sometimes 15-year partnerships where it's, it's basically impossible to get out. And you, you are essentially standing up for a marriage with some of these managers. So you have to think about what is it that is going to drive the success of these partnerships over the long term. And a lot of that unsurprisingly revolves around people and primarily the people that are leading these partnerships and kind of their process in, in selecting their investments. And when you look at a firm like Ward Ferry, I would say that their investment style is quite similar to mine. Again, very strong focus on people, long duration investments, high quality businesses. And many of the investments that I looked after there, uh, we held for the entire nine years that I was, I was at the firm. And I think similarly, what, when I look back across all of the investments that I worked on at the firm there, the ones that I think did the best were the businesses that were run by really exceptional people. And I think the process of finding those was very well educated by what I did at Global Endowment. And again, I think what I'm looking to build upon as I've started this firm. Are you able to offer us a bit more color in general, what you do to build up that understanding of the people with whom you're investing? Sure. I think part of it is tied up in, it, in just our investment process in general, which we can talk about. But, but really what you try to do is just maximize the size of your funnel. So I try to meet between 250 and 300 companies a year. Unfortunately, a lot of that in the past two years has been over Zoom, but you can learn so much from just spending time on the ground, meeting people in their offices. And we're looking for kind of nothing to do a year or maybe one, one or two new ideas per year. What that affords us is the luxury of time to really do our homework on companies. And if I'm evaluating an investment, we typically like to spend hundreds of hours researching the business in detail particularly focused on the senior leadership team or hopefully the founders running the business. And the way that we do that is, is by just interviewing as many different people who have touch points to that ecosystem as possible. So that could be competitors, former employees, uh, people that they may have come across earlier in their careers, customers, suppliers, things like that. And I think the reason we do that is, I guess, if, if I was trying to figure out what kind of person Graham Rhodes is, if, if I talked to 20 or 25 different people that that know you or have interacted with you, I, I think I could probably have 95% confidence level of what kind of person you are based on the collective responses of each of those people. So that, that's really our, our, our process of kind of identifying talent. Part of your secret sauce is something that you call the UP score, the underwriting people score. And I think it's really cool how you've tried to quantify this. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The underwriting people score or up score. So this is an exercise that we do on every investment that we work on. And really what we're doing is it's very simple and it does not determine the outcome of our investment, but it's a useful just framework to apply. So we're trying to grade each 
company and management team on a set of five different dimensions, the experience of the management team, their reputation in the market, their reliability, are they people who have consistently done what they say they're going to do? What is their incentive system? And then you know, how engaged are they with investors? And really what we're trying to do is that we're not trying to solve for the highest score, but trying to solve for in many respects to the lowest score to see if a particular company or management team is very deficient in one area. Is that something that we are comfortable with and why? And the reason I developed this score was because I worked on probably 50 plus investments over my career. And when I went back and applied this framework to each of them, I found unsurprisingly, the ones that did the worst were the ones that had some very significant deficiency in one of these five areas, which is something that we knew going into it, but we decided to to overlook given our thoughts on the potential risk reward of the investments. Really what we're trying to do here is avoid mistakes rather than try to, to find the best possible score here. One of my favorite business books is called The Halo Effect by Phil Rosenzweig. And he talks about the danger of allowing causality to flow the opposite way. And if I can summarize it, there's a real risk in markets of inferring from what we can see, usually a rising stock price, about the quality of a management team. And I think that's never been clearer for me in my career than over the last two years when yesterday's heroes have become today's zeros. So how do you avoid that mistake? You mentioned that your best performing investments were, in hindsight, the ones with the highest upscores. But how do you stay objective there and avoid falling into the trap of the halo effect? I think the answer is that there are many great entrepreneurs in Asia and many great businesses that come in all different shapes and sizes. So our job is to try to find the best ones out of that large group. And I think one way to, to avoid these halo effects is again, to focus on what can go wrong rather than what can go, well, I mean, assume you already have a pretty good understanding of what can go right. Um, really trying to mitigate risk by focusing on what could go wrong. And again, in, in those 50 plus investments, nine times out of 10, the negative investment outcome was related to people. I think you guys do have certain pawns in which you like to fish, am I right? So it sounds like people aren't the only thing. There's also a couple of industries that you like to play in as well. So tell us a bit about those. Sure. So I focus on three primary industries. The first is what I call digital economy businesses. So that includes things like internet, software, financial technologies. The second vertical is consumer-oriented businesses. That could be anything from food and beverage to even auto companies or branded hardware companies. The third sector is financial technology, sorry, financial services. So, you know, banks, insurance companies, wealth management businesses. And, um, you know, the reason I focus on on those three types of businesses, I think, I think first of all, th these are the industries that attract the best talent. The second point is these are industries where management teams, I think, can really be the masters of their own destiny. So these tend to be less cyclical businesses, less dependence on commodity prices, government policy, capital markets, et cetera. And in my experience, Again, I think there's huge divergence across each of these, these three business verticals, but typically you find very high returns on invested capital relative to industrials or commodity linked or real estate linked businesses. And then, then finally, these are just areas that I think I understand pretty well and the businesses just tend to be simpler and more readily analyzable. I understand that and I agree. And if we kind of take a step back, why does Asia lend itself to this kind of investing? Asia is 20 very heterogeneous countries, different languages, customs, cultures, economic and market structures. How does um, your strategy fit to this environment? Or why do it here, in other words? The obvious statistics are that there's 4 billion people in Asia or over 4 billion people, and that's over 10 times the size of the United States. And I think equity markets here are still very much of their infancy. So you have this, this very big white space, both in terms of 
consumers that these businesses can sell to. And then I think the number of companies that you can invest in is still very much in its early days. And I think that when you look at the many of the leading businesses here, they are still just so early on in their S curves. There's been so many of these trends over the past 10 years that you could have caught on to, like internet penetration, smartphone penetration, motorcycle penetration in India, mortgages, financial inclusion. And I think particularly in emerging Asia, these industries are still very much in their infancy. That, that's really what tracks me at a high level to, to this part of the world. And then when you look at the underlying capital markets, I think two things, two observations. So first is the amount of what I call patient capital with a patient mindset is still in relatively short supply. My, many of my peers in Hong Kong are very focused on quarterly returns or event-driven investing, which I'm not saying is a bad way to invest. It's just, it's very different than what we're trying to do, which is trying to find people that are building decade, multi-decade franchises. And the ability to ride that out is, is I think, a huge asset out here. And then I think finally, just it's just a less efficient market. And I think it's an area where you can add a ton of value by putting boots on the ground and doing your own homework on investment. I want to ask as well, Rob, because one of the things that I've found most challenging as someone running my own business is learning how to manage my own time most efficiently, trying to maximize my productivity. So I'm curious to hear how you do it. Like you talked about there being tens of thousands of companies here, but how you will look at maybe just 250 a year and then finally, perhaps even just make one investment a year. So tell me a little bit about the filters you use to cut down from that big universe to the ones that you actually do work on to presumably going more in depth on. A lot of it comes from experience. So I've, I try to meet personally to 250 plus companies a year, but you know, I've been doing this in public markets for 10 years now, and I have a pretty good understanding of the types of businesses that I would like to invest in. And in many cases, this 250 a year is, it might be the same company. And this might be my 20th time meeting them. And really what you're trying to do is just stay on top of what's happening to their business, their industry. Are they launching new products? Is there some new part of the business that you haven't understood and that meeting them again would be helpful with? And I think just staying abreast of businesses that you think you might one day be interested in investing in, but maybe not today because of whether it be price or relative risk award versus what you have in your portfolio. I find that an extremely helpful way to to generate new ideas, but also just to stay informed on what's happening and how that can impact your existing portfolio. So I think that's the first thing, and that's my primary source of information flow. And we have, it was a team of three of us on the investment side now that that really help expand that across Asia and do it both in, in, in greater numbers and also in local language. So I have a colleague, Leo Lee, who covers China for the firm and Hideyuki Nakanishi, who is a consultant covering Japan. And, um, yeah, so I think, again, staying on, on top of what's happening within your subset of companies is a great first step. And then when we're interested in delving a bit deeper, I try to spend hundreds of hours of research on each of our companies. And that's a huge time sink. And, you know, I don't, I don't really have, you know, especially when running a business, I just don't have hundreds of hours to allocate personally to each of these businesses. So we found a great hack, particularly for our size, has been to have a, a really great intern pool, which I call the Ulu School <laughs> Um, which is an internship crossed with a mentorship program. And we've had 10 graduates of that so far in the last year. And these guys and girls are great and they're very hungry, very eager to learn about investing and will work very hard usually, and can be just a great way for me to extend deeper into these businesses. We're doing everything from running channel checks on businesses or helping me build investment memos and models, and generally just trying to do, be an extension of our investment team. And 
the way that I typically work with them is it's usually one to two months per company that they spend only that's only working on that one particular project. And I find that's been a pretty effective way to kind of deepen our understanding of each business in the portfolio and ones that are going in. That, that, that sounds really smart, actually. <laughs> I like that a lot. I might have to borrow that idea. Um, Rob, tell me a bit about portfolio construction. I'd like to know once a stock makes it across the line, like how do you think about scaling into the position and, and what do you think about allocation between positions and kind of thing? It, one thing to stress is that it's a very subjective process and based on, I'd say, primarily qualitative inputs. So it's just kind of three, three major factors that go into it. So there's the first is a qualitative assessment of the entrepreneurial drive of the management teams of each company. There's, again, our assessment of their ability to allocate capital and more importantly, compound that over multiple years. Then we take those two qualitative factors and combine it with our quantitative assessment of where they are in this value creation journey relative to how it's being priced in the market today. So that's where our modeling comes in. We maintain three sets of target prices on each company to keep us honest over the short term, but not lose sight of what they're building over the next 10 years. And based on a combination of these three factors, that influences sizing in the portfolio. Typically our larger positions will be anywhere from 10 to 20% of the fund and at the smaller end, kind of zero to five. But generally, Companies will enter the portfolio as a small position, and as we gain conviction, we'll, we'll, we'll be added to. And during these turbulent times, how do you handle volatility, or how do you think about volatility, even on a personal level? Because sometimes it can be tough to sit on a long-term position when markets are as choppy as they are today. Yeah, I think it's important to bear in mind what we're trying to do here. And again, with 10 stocks and the level of concentration, we have almost 70% of the fund is invested in the top five positions. And that is going to just naturally lead to a tremendous amount of day-to-day, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter volatility. And I think there's no escaping that. So I think this job is just as much about investing as it is about psychology. And I think one of my one of my biggest regrets in launching this firm is that I had to get a Bloomberg terminal to do our trading. <laughs> it, it forces you to look at prices every day, but that's, if there's one thing that I would change, that would be that to, to turn that <laughs> off. Yeah. What about rebalancing? Do you believe in rebalancing or once something's set, do you leave it there? I think, you know, particularly in markets like these, we have been doing some small rebalancing. For example, we launched three months ago and we probably made five trades, which have all been very incremental changes in sizing. But generally I look for very big moves in stock prices to be a reason to to rebalance. If, for example, if a stock goes up 50% on a very limited fundamental news, then that would probably be a reason to trim or again, hopefully they'll be adding if a stock is down 20% after earnings or after some news report. But uh, yeah, generally I try to uh, avoid trading as much as possible. In some ways, having that five-year investment horizon must actually be really clarifying because so much just falls away as noise. But when do you concede a mistake and what's the process when that happens? That's a great question because I think it's very easy to paint a five or a rosy picture over a five or 10 year period and just totally lose sight of what's happening over the short term. And I think at the end of the day, if you're trying to manage for short term volatility, you know, quarters matter. But yeah, I think the way that I try to manage is to, and I talked to earlier about having three sets of target prices, and that really tries to keep you honest for all different parts in the life cycle of an investment. So the three sets are 18 months what you think the business can be worth in three years and then 10 years. And and the 18 months is designed to, again, keep you honest over the short term. Is there something that's happening over in the next six to six to 18 months that you think could change your thesis or lead to a negative outcome? And that definitely influences sizing in the portfolio. So if I think something is going to have a rough next year, that probably should not be the biggest position in the portfolio. I think 
that's a great tool to have, even though that we are long-term investors, you don't want to lose sight of what's happening in the industry, you know, particularly given industries change extremely rapidly technology space. The three-year target price is designed to make you a long-term investor. So most sell-side models end after two years. So three years is automatically making you long-term. And then 10 years is designed to, to make you ensure that you don't sell your winners too early. So it's, if you're building a 10-year model on something, and you probably have no idea what it's going to what the industry or the business is going to look like in 10 years, but it's more of a, what do I have to believe exercise to earn a decent return over the next 20 years, even though the, the near term stock price might be high, how do we make sure we don't exit this position too early? And then to your earlier question, how do we manage for mistakes? We have a post-mortem after every major piece of news, after every quarterly earnings update, a discussion amongst the team to decide where have we gone wrong, where can we add value with a new research project, going deeper on this company. My philosophy is that you're buying your portfolio fresh every day, and you should be willing and able to sell anything at any time. No need to be wedded to, to any one particular name. So I, I think another thing that's become abundantly obvious in the last 12 months is that while they might be diversified across geographies or industries. High growth assets do tend to be correlated because of their longer duration. And that has become, as I say, painfully obvious even as, as interest rates have gone up and have gone up as quickly as they have. Do you think about that at all in your portfolio construction and you know, ways to build in diversification? Or are you agnostic to that impact? Absolutely. I build it in. And I think having been through a couple cycles in my career now, I mean, again, I, start, I started in my, at least my summer internship in 2007. So I've seen the, the great financial crisis as well and how companies have been suddenly repriced from high valuations to low. And I think that the key takeaways from both that crisis and this one is it's really important to stick with a framework consistently through the cycle. And if you can consistently apply that, I think you should do fine. I think there's been no escaping high core, high, if, if you were investing in growing businesses, you were going to have a very painful experience in the last you know, six to 12 months. But yeah, it's, I think, again, if you were investing with a five or 10 year time horizon, that hopefully will not matter as much in the longer arc of time. We're going to try to stitch everything that we talked about together in a case study of free uh, in Japan. So Rob, what are the ingredients of a dream investment for you? And how did free fit the bill? Why don't you begin as well by telling us like what is free and what it does and how you came across it? Okay. So free is Japan's leading SaaS ERP company. They cater to a mix of self-employed businesses and SMBs. And the core products are accounting and HR related SaaS, but they've morphed into a number of different kind of ERP related verticals in the last two to three years. And I came across free. So this is a company that went public, I believe at the end of 2019. And I think software businesses are obviously great given the uh, high proportion of recurring revenue. Um, I think software businesses are great businesses in Japan, particularly in this vertical, given extremely low rates of penetration. So, you know, in many cases for freeze customer base, you know, they're competing against like pen and paper and Excel. And uh, it's just like an enormous runway for growth in accounting and HR related SaaS. And you know, I think the great thing about this business is that we've seen this movie before in so many different markets. Two businesses that I hold in particularly high regard are uh, Zero, X-E-R-O, which is an Australian uh, Australian accounting SaaS company, and uh, Intuit, uh, which, which owns TurboTax, in addition to a couple other businesses there. So yeah, I think this is a great example of a business which I think can easily compound uh, over the next, uh, compound at very high rates over the next 10 to 15 years. And right now it is still in a very early stage of growth. 
you asked for about the ingredients of a, a dream investment and um you know for me it really starts with like an a plus management team that mm. can attract a plus talent and i think free really fits that bill and uh, if you talk to as part of our research you talk to you know, former employees competitors customers and you know, they all said the same thing that this is a pretty unique company in the way that they approach their product and a lot of that is led or uh, a lot of that we believe is a product of of the uh, the founder and the culture that he's built at the company. So the founder of the company is a guy named uh, Sasaki San or or Dice, and he is he, he says that his inspiration for founding this business was actually his family's hair salon and seeing all the difficulties that the salon had in managing the hairdressers and running the books, paying taxes at the end of the year. And he later in his career worked at Google working with a lot of SMBs on their advertising product. And again, the same observation there is just a lot of the problems that these businesses have are just you know, infrastructure. And I think you saw a big window of opportunity to address that with, with free accounting, which was their first product. Um, you know, and I also say as a small business owner myself, Zero, which is the analogous product in our part of the world is, is extremely helpful for us. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very easy to maintain our books. We haven't been through an audit yet, but I believe that's going to be very simple at the end of the year. And yeah, so. I think that's that's how we arrived at it. I want to take a step back because I don't know, and I presume there are others like me who aren't really aware of the vibrant startup ecosystem in Japan. So can you just give us a little intro to that? One thing that's very unique about Japan, particularly relative to the United States and China next door, is um, a lot of companies go public at a very low valuation, or not that they're cheaply valued by any stretch, but they are just at an earlier stage. In China, you have companies like for example, ByteDance, which is worth hundreds of billions of dollars and is still private. Many, many companies in Japan go public at just a few hundred billion dollars of valuation. And they do that for a number of different reasons, but part of it's branding related, part of it's just a lack of depth of the local venture capital ecosystem. But for us, that's a great opportunity because these companies, when they go public, they're typically don't attract a lot of attention from the sell side because liquidity tends to be lower, and particularly for foreign investors. It takes them a long time to get up to speed on them because usually only Japanese language materials are available. And for people who are willing to spend the time getting to know the management teams and doing their homework, I think you can really find companies that are much earlier in their life cycle. What do you think it is that makes Dice such a great manager? Are there any anecdotes or design choices or strategy choices that he's made that you think um, stand out? I mean, I think, I think two things, right? So if you look at the way that the product is built, it's different. And the way it's sold is different. Free is very much a package business. So you get, maybe you don't turn on all of the different parts of the package, but it's, they created it to be like a single user ID for accounting, for HR, for all of the other things that they've added to it. Whereas competitors have grown acquisition mainly. If you're an accounting user, you have to like open up a new module, which is like an entirely different user interface. And it's like opening a different program almost. So that, that's like the architecture of the software is fundamentally different. And that, that kind of feeds into the user experience and why free is so much easier to use. And the second part is just the way that the accounting entries are designed. So free is single entry bookkeeping. They use AI to automatically complete the other side of the, the equation, which just makes the whole user experience much easier and much faster to use. Can you just remind me, is what is the advantage of being cloud-based? Why go with that as opposed to just buying the CD and paying the one-off license fee? I think it's wrapped up in all of the different uh, problems that, you know, like an HR division would face, right? But like, think about the, on the accounting front, what types of data inputs these accounting guys have. So they have, you know, their bank, they have their suppliers, they have their customers, they have an inventory management, they have people. 
and they have the taxing government at the other end of it. And, and these, you know, for like larger organizations, these can be like 10, 20, 30, 40 people working in these operations roles. And as firms grow, the complexity grows exponentially as well. And the advantage of having cloud is that previously these data sources were stored on all these different programs that were helping manage your payables or receivables or your inventory or your paper receipts from your suppliers or customers. And having the ability to integrate all that into one platform is just enormously helpful from a time management standpoint and just re reduces the number of people that you need to have on your team. So the on-premise guys, the data is stored in different places. It's actually stored in many cases on the physical PCs themselves, which mm -hmm. makes collaboration very difficult. If you update one part of one database, the database and the other computer has to be updated. And also we're increasingly in a um, remote working environment and you know, that obviously makes on-premise software very, very difficult to use. I just want to follow up on that last point you made because I totally get the convenience of building an all-in-one product suite where the data that you enter here works seamlessly with the service over there. But it's really hard to do that and really expensive. So when did Dice and his team decide to go down that road? And is there a story there that kind of sheds some light on the company and its strategic decision-making? Or yeah, anything you can share on that part would be pretty interesting too, because it's definitely playing in hard mode. It's been the DNA since the beginning. I mean, the company's founded in 2012. The accounting software package came out a year later, the HR a year later. So it's so really, we've got like eight years of the core product being in the market and, and it's been iterated on and improved upon continuously throughout that period. So it's not like they just started yesterday. It's a product which I don't think you could just build tomorrow if someone gave you you know a billion dollars to to start free 2.0. Yeah. You talked a bit about your due diligence process, interviewing people from the company, ex-employees, competitors. What about getting to know the, the product itself? How did you put yourself in the shoes of a small Japanese business owner to really understand the difference this could make? There's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we we tried the product and, and tried their competitors as well. And the difference is obviously the data is stored in the cloud and that makes a huge difference for small and medium-sized businesses, which are freeze target market relative to some of the legacy on-premise solutions. And, you know, when I talked about the learnings earlier from our conversations with customers and former employees, et cetera, there's a lot of focus in this company on product and user experience. And, you know, when we try these, these products, it's really like night and day free versus um, the, the incumbent providers there. And your question on putting your, yourself in the shoes of a small business owner or operations person, I mean, these things that might seem trivial to us as investors are actually very time intensive for these people. I mean, think about running a hundred person business and these people get paid every month, base salary, maybe they work overtime. You have to track that time. It might take a client out for lunch. You have to handle the receipts from that. How do you govern the allowances for transportation, deal with the different medical insurance policies from the government? How do they pay taxes? How do you calculate their bonus? And then how does that feed all into your overall ERP system? And then you might have 20, 30, 40 people joining the company every month. It's just a lot of paperwork and having a solution that really helps you manage all this is extremely valuable for these organizations. I mean, some of the companies that we spoke with, if you do the math on the cost of the product relative to the time saved, it was like a hundred X ROI. I think that really spoke to the value add here. And can you remind me, is it sold by the bookkeepers a bit like zero as opposed to the company itself doing its own marketing? So they've just made a, a small acquisition to increase their tie-ups with bookkeepers, but primarily it's either sold, like you can just go buy it on the website or if you're a medium-sized business.
primarily it's sold through direct sales channels. So people actually going out and visiting people's offices and cold calling and things like that. I see. So I thought that was one of Zero's hidden strengths, right? Like you have this network of bookkeepers around New Zealand and Australia who are recommending this to their clients. And then once you start using it, it's very hard to switch because this is the language with which you, you know, talk accounting. Yeah. yeah but it also, to, to your point on being very hard to switch, if you look at the churn rates of their larger the corporate side of their business, which again is the minority of their customer base, but the vast majority of their revenue, the turn rate is about half. It's about, I think, 0.6% per month. If you had to rank all the software providers that a medium-sized business might use on the scale of one to five, five being the hardest to rip and replace, this would probably be like a four or a five, just because it's so critical to day-to-day -day operations of your business that once it's in there, it's very unlikely to, to be ripped out. And we were talking before about researching and investing across Asia. And I was wondering, is there anything that made it particularly difficult to lift the hood on this company? I know you have a Japanese-based and Japanese-speaking colleague now, but you yourself, were there any language barriers or cultural barriers that you had to cross? Actually, unique for this business, it's, it's a pretty straightforward product. The company speaks English. It's a very modern, dynamic organization. I think... The hard part here was being able to, first of all, interview customers, speak to former employees at the company to understand how the culture works. And I think that's something that is, is probably quite difficult to do through a translator. You just, you miss a lot of that, the finer points there. And really also under, understanding the challenges that are unique to Japan that these businesses face and how free is able to address them. And do you think there's any danger superimposing an S-curve, like what you would have seen in New Zealand, Australia, or the States in terms of the adoption of digital services? onto Japan. Perhaps Japanese businesses are just more reluctant to use digital services. Did you notice anything like that? It's always nice to look at S-curves and estimate where we are from a penetration standpoint and where it could yeah. be and addressable markets. But really, these guys are building the market. And I think that's a better way to look at it is like they're creating their own S-curve. And in their last quarterly results, they released their five-year growth plan. <laughs> And it's really a function of going back to the LTV to CAC ratio and you know, can you continue to acquire these customers at attractive rates of return? And I think as long as that's still the case, then this company still has a very long runway to grow. And, yeah. and to put things in perspective, they have four, almost 400,000 customers today, and there's 6 million self-employed and small businesses in Japan. So this business is just like a very long runway to grow. And they're about to get a big nudge from the government, aren't they, through this new proposal to and make it, I think, mandatory to keep all business records digitally. So there's two policies that came out. The first is the electronic, it's called the Electronic Books and Maintenance Act. And what it means is that all companies have to maintain their receipts electronically. You can't have it in pen and paper anymore. And uh, this is just like a, basically a, a huge tailwind for free as they obviously enable you to store all this digitally. Um, you can like take a, take a picture of your receipt and it records it for you. And so that's coming into, into act in the beginning of 2024, I believe. And then the second big policy is called the, uh, it's called the invoice system for consumption tax credits. And that's coming into place at the end of next year. And basically a lot of these small businesses are, in Japan, because of their size, are exempt from the country's consumption tax. But in order to prove that, any company that's dealing with these small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, has to register all of their invoices and provide the tax receipts and show these to the government so that, that they can maintain this tax-exempt status. So basically, it's going to force a lot of these small businesses to register 
register their activities with the government. And in order to do that, they need some kind of software or system like this to run it. And so again, that's a great tailwind for, for these cloud accounting providers, just because it's cheap and relatively easy to implement. Yeah, that sounds like a big tailwind. So it, it, against that backdrop, you mentioned that free is actually increasing investment. They're beginning a new OPEX cycle this fiscal year, which is kind of counter to like many other software companies around the world, which are tightening their belts right now. H how do you feel about this new OPEX cycle? I'm actually relatively indifferent to accounting profits for the near term here. Again, it, for me, it's all about are new customers being acquired at attractive rates of return and are your overall churn rates low and hopefully improving. And that's definitely the case for this business. And in my mind, if they wanted to grow even faster or acquire more customers, I would actually be in, in favor of losses increasing further. Uh, you'll notice the market definitely disagrees with me as soon as they release that plan. I think the share price went down a lot, but really you have to put in perspective, what are they trying to build here? And it's if they're not doing that, I think they're leaving a ton of money on the table. And if you talk about this is not like a this is not like a snack food company or a car company or something that's selling kind of like one-off purchases to customers. And if you're signing up for free, essentially signing up for maybe not for life, but definitely for the tenure of your career as the the kind of administrator of the software, just given where how hard it is to replace um, with with their competitors. So um, yeah, I was actually quite excited by their uh, the plan that they announced. They put out longer term operating margin targets. What is the road to get there? Is it just scale and time? Again, there's so many examples of more mature software business that that have grown into becoming high margin businesses. So the renewal renewal margins in this business are almost whatever the gross margin is, 80% here or 80 plus percent for free. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if, if you model the business based on target number of new customers to grow, what it costs to acquire that customer, how you think that CAC will change over time, what the churn rates are on the business, and then assume that they don't blow it all on, on higher R&D expenses. I mean, it, I think it's very easy to make a case for this company that has, has high margins on the road. You know, and by high, I mean like you know, 30% plus. That's probably my biggest hang up about this because at the end of the day, even if you get to 100% penetration, you have 100% market share. That's just 6 million potential customers. Whereas if you think about a global business now, or I guess most of these aren't global, but even Intuit in the States probably has an order of magnitude larger a market over which to amortize its expenses and fixed investment. So I think a great example of this is, uh, is zero. They have many multiples, the number of customers that Free does in Australia alone. And that's, again, I think a couple hundred million dollars of revenue from Australia, New Zealand combined. And that, that business has, a, I think, I'm sure it's changed probably six or $7 billion market cap today, mm. if not more. Yeah, I think this doesn't need to be the next Alibaba for us to make a ton of money. It is, the TAM doesn't have to be that big, but it's the, the market is enormous. And going back to what we're trying to do here at Uluwatu, the uh, finding great entrepreneurs, building great businesses. What's exciting about this company is that what they haven't talked about yet. What are the product extensions that they could do that they haven't done yet? So for example, they're talking about moving into a CRM or supplier management or talent management, th things like that. But once you already have a significant proportion of Japan's small and medium-sized businesses as your customer, I think there's a lot that you can do with that very captive audience. And once you've set the standard and you have the data, as you say, very easy just to extend your product suite. This is the business culture that's set up to, to always be creating that new product vertical. It's very clear on the website, like just the way that they talk about their team philosophy, the uh, the way they treat engineers. You know, after after a year of joining free, like an engineer can move to any department they want. There's constant polling of engineers who have the best impact, and whoever gets the poll gets to spend like one month on their own pet project. It, it's not surprising that they've iterated 
or that they've grown their product portfolio as much as they have in the past few years since the IPO. Is it hard to find good engineers in Japan? Like, is the competition for that really hot? I think it is. I'm sure like it is anywhere, but I'm not sure how I can quantify that. But I will say that engineers want to work at great places to work at. And mm. this is a culture that really, I say more so than other players in its space, really is an engineer driven company. Yeah. And I think that's at its core, that's the kind of secret sauce of this business. Do, do they, um, I mean, how does incentivization work in Japan? Have they embraced the culture of stock-based compensation like they, they have in America? I think not to the same extent as, as in the US. I think what I do like about this business is that the founder is a very significant shareholder. So he owns almost 20% of the business and the other two top executives also own single digit percentages. So the alignment is very strong. What are the milestones that you're looking for to confirm that things are going right? On a quarter to quarter basis, again, I'm not trying to trade off this, but I think I'd use it as a scorecard. I look for continued progress or maintaining their existing financial KPIs. So for example, our estimate of LTV to CAC, NRR, churn rates, ARPUs, very, very straightforward um, KPIs like that. I look for continued innovation in their product suite. Again, they've given some small previews as to what they want to build in the next couple of years there. Um, this set a quantitative target for five years out in terms of customers across both parts of their business, their small and medium-sized businesses and their self-employed segments and the kind of revenue that'll be associated with each of those. So yeah, I think as long as they're on track to, to hit that, then I'm pretty happy to be patient. And this is a business that could take a number of years to, to be appreciated more fully by, by financial markets, or at least as much as it was 12 months ago. Well, it was the same with Zero, to be fair. That was an overnight success, which took at least a decade to make. And I just want to ask as well. So Japanese software stocks didn't escape the mania of the last two years. So what was Free's experience of the cycle? Did they make rational decisions in today's light when it came to hiring or M&A? How do you evaluate their performance over the last two years since going public? Oh, performance has been great. They've done everything they said they're going to do. They've pivoted more quickly into larger customers. They've doubled, doubled or tripled the size of their product suite, doubled the size of their addressable market. It's been great from that standpoint. And like, one of the things I love about investing in entrepreneur-led businesses is that getting a good understanding of the culture and entrepreneur is kind of like being able to see around the corner from a modeling standpoint. I mean, you're kind of, you're, there, there's more, there's more to the thesis than you were able to put in your financial model. And I think that's what's transpired here in the last few years, just given the kind of in, pace of innovation here. But, you know, the, from, from a stock point, a stock price standpoint, it's been a very big Roller coaster ride. You know, I, I think down from the peak, it's probably a 70 or 80% decline. But I think that's just a function of you know, over enthusiasm in the market about, uh, I, I think, software valuation multiples in general. Rob, let's close up the interview now. I do have one last question. What is the name Uluwatu? Oh, so Uluwatu is my favorite beach in Indonesia. And I'd say it's my happy place. So I wanted to bring all the happiness of that place into the office every day. So yeah, if you're, if you're ever in, in Bali, I'd encourage you to, to let me know and I'll come join you. Fantastic. What kind of people would you, you most like to hear from? Actually, we would love to expand our, our what I mentioned, the Ulu School. So if anyone has any leads on people who are interested in internships or mentorship programs or anything of that nature, please feel free to get in contact with us. That's a really big part of our process here and has added a lot of value in the last few months to us. So um, I'd love to build on that if possible. And what's the best way for people to find you and to contact you? Oh, yeah, just shoot me an email. It's rob at uh, ulu-limited.com or just look me up on LinkedIn. Well, Rob, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been great to talk with you and really appreciate your, your time coming onto the show today. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's been fun.
Great. Thank you. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, come check out my site too, www.longriverinv.com. Thanks everyone and safe investing.